Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be continuing our study in the works of Jesus. So we come now to the most serious of his works, that work that he did on the cross on our behalf. We're going to be spending this Sunday and next Sunday looking at this particular topic. And, and this is a, it's a challenging place in Scripture to, uh, to stop and to study uh, for lots of different reasons. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, Monday Night Football in 1985, the play that, that changed instant replay and slow motion replay forever. It was the night that Lawrence Taylor hit Joe Theismann in the backfield of the, the football game, the Giants against the Redskins, and he snapped Joe Theismann's leg in two places. You could hear it on the replay as well as see it. It was probably the first time in sports history that you actually heard the announcers in the booth when they watched the replay groan, and maybe even themselves, you could feel them turning away from the screen. They continued to show the replay a couple different times, and each time they showed it, uh, I believe it was, I won't guess who the announcer was, but the announcer said, you may not want to watch this. You may want to turn away. And uh, I remember watching that football game, and I remember seeing that, and I remember not watching the replay. You can look at it on YouTube. I would suggest you don't, because it is very graphic, and it is very real. We see, you know, kind of blood and guts, so to speak, all the time in make-believe in movies and on TV, but we know that those, those actors who, you know, who get shot, they get up after the take is over, and they, they go on their merry way, and nothing actually happens to them. This was a real experience, a real person who was uh, knocked out of football for the rest of his life uh, and suffered terribly. It's hard to stop and linger at the cross. It's hard to really pay attention with any kind of in-depth study of the cross of Jesus Christ simply because of its ugliness, because the suffering is horrific. And much like the, uh, the replay on Monday night football, the cross is not for the faint of heart. It's not even for really for the emotionally sturdy among us. We are tempted to read through this passage of scripture, to acknowledge it, but then to move on Quickly, after all, isn't it more fun to talk about the resurrection? And yet, though we be tempted to look away, I'm going to ask us for this Sunday and for next to look at the suffering of Jesus uh, pretty carefully and to consider what Jesus went through on the cross in order that your sins and my sins may be paid for and we might have the opportunity for eternal life. The cross has become... Uh, an icon in our generation. We wear them around our necks. Uh, we adorn our homes with them. My wife has a collection of 12 different crosses that she has displayed in our living room. They're all different shapes and all different sizes. Uh, we have a cross in our worship space on Sunday mornings, and yet the cross is one of the most horrific and awful instruments of death and scenes in all of history, what we're going to look at this morning and next week, I will tell you, is very, very terrible, and we're going to dig in just a little bit. My intention is, is not to, uh, to glorify this. My intention is, is not to dwell on it too long as to become macabre, but rather to appreciate and understand fully 
as much as we can humanly what Christ Jesus endured for our sake. With that in mind, Matthew chapter 27, we're actually going to begin before the crucifixion. We're going to begin with the the beating that Jesus received at the hand of his Roman captors, and then we will continue on to the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 27 through 44, hear the word of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed. And they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man from Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down to watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes And the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that your word would speak clearly into our lives. Father, this is a passage of scripture of which we are aware if we've been people of faith for any amount of time. But it tends to be a passage of Scripture that we, we look at maybe once a year and then move past quickly because it is awful. And the thought of it, the experience, the beating, the spitting, the mocking, the abject horror of the crucifixion and the death that that meant tempts us to move quickly past, to acknowledge it, to be thankful for it, but not to give it too much time lest we become uncomfortable. So, Father, I pray for um, our uncomfortableness this morning that you would let us stop here and pause for a few moments and that you would show us the terrible price that had to be paid and that you would allow us to see the endurance of our Lord Jesus as a means of encouragement to his people, not just paying the price for our sins, 
but teaching, it what, teaching us what it means to endure such an awful experience for the sake of others. He is not only our Savior, He is our supreme teacher. So Lord Jesus, we pray that this experience of yours would penetrate our hearts and our souls and our minds this morning. Protect us from looking away. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me give you the, the sermon in a sentence, as is kind of my custom these days, so that you get an appreciation or a picture for where we're headed this morning. The physical suffering of Jesus and the verbal of abuse that Jesus endured redeemed suffering in the lives of his disciples. So we're going to look at two of the three aspects of Jesus' suffering this morning, and next week we'll look at the third. The first aspect of Jesus' suffering we're going to look at is the physical suffering of Jesus. What did he actually endure in his body during these several hours on what we now call Good Friday? We're also going to look at the emotional abuse that Jesus suffered prior to the crucifixion and all the way through the crucifixion. And next week, we're going to kind of turn the page, so to speak, and we're going to look at the spiritual suffering of Jesus. What did it mean for Jesus spiritually to hang on the cross. But this morning, the physical suffering and the emotional suffering of Jesus. If you begin in verse 29, you will notice that the soldiers have taken Jesus to the governor's headquarters. They've stripped him. They've put a scarlet robe on him, not to to worship him, but to mock him. And then in verse 29, it says, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. So this is a, a picture that you have probably seen before. Uh, artists have depicted it, or perhaps you've seen literally someone's uh, rendition of a crown of thorns. These thorns probably came from the local palm uh, trees. They were somewhere around two to three inches in length. If you kind of just tap the end of one very lightly, you wouldn't even have to really push in on it. You would prick your finger and uh, you would begin to bleed. So these are very sharp needles and they're woven together in order to mock Jesus' claim of being king of the Jews. But they're not just meant to mock, they're meant to inflict, inflict pain. Think about pricking your finger with a needle. I was sewing the other day, putting a button on a pair of pants, and I slipped and just kind of barely popped my finger. Not bad, but boy, oh boy, you, you thought the world had come to an end. I'm shaking my finger and getting some ice and crying to Cindy just because I had a little pinprick on my finger. Think of dozens upon dozens of needles push down on your head. The flow of blood that would come that would get into your eyes so you couldn't see who the people were that were beating you. So even if you wanted to turn away from the physical blows you were receiving, you couldn't. And every time you were hit, you were were again having those uh, needles pushed down into your skull. The top of Jesus' head must have wanted to explode. But not only did he endure, endure the crown of thorns, but as I just mentioned in verse 30, he was beaten again for the second time that day. It says they spit on him and they took the reed or the staff that was in his hand and they struck him specifically on the head. So where he was already in pain, it simply was intensified. I said the second time because if you went back and you looked earlier, Jesus had been in the house of the high priest where he had been punched and where he had been slapped. He's already a bit battered and bruised when he comes to this particular spot. But the Roman soldiers take great delight 
in making sure that before Jesus goes to the cross, he is literally beaten within an inch of his life. In fact, there were many people who were condemned to crucifixion, who were beaten prior to the crucifixion, that actually collapsed and died before they ever got to the cross. But the soldiers would get in trouble if the crucifixion didn't take place. If they actually beat a person too badly and killed him, they themselves would be punished. So these men had become experts in knowing just how much harm you could inflict, just how much physical pain a person could endure and survive long enough to be crucified. So before Jesus ever comes to the cross itself, he's in incredible, excruciating pain. But then we read in verse 35, they crucified him. They offered him wine to drink. They took him to a place uh, called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And Jesus was crucified. What it means to be crucified is to die one of the worst deaths possible in human history. If you do a study of ways people are executed, you will find crucifixion right there at the very top. This is a death that can take up to a week to die because it is a death of slow suffocation. The way you are affixed to a cross, and in Jesus' day, there were crosses that were in the shape of of X's, so it was kind of a spread eagle type experience, but in Jesus' case, According to biblical and church history, it was more the the shape and size of this particular cross. And actually, the artist who created this cross did so hoping to to get the measurements as close as possible to the actual cross of Jesus. So this is about the shape or the size of a cross. The cross beam was put in place, then it was laid as it was laid on the ground. Then the person who was going to be crucified was laid on top of the cross. And in this case, their hands were spread out and a nail or a spike was put right at the base of their palm, right where the radius and ulna come together, so the the spike could actually have the bone hanging on it on both sides. Then their ankles, their feet were laid over top, and there was a spike put in the very top of their feet where their ankle bone uh, joins at the bottom in order that they then be hung from the cross. They were most likely, and Jesus probably was too, there were probably some ropes that were affixed to his arms and maybe to his waist because flesh tears. And flesh rips, and you didn't want him to fall off of the cross and have to be reattached. The way the cross was then stood up, several people got behind it. There were ropes in front. They pulled and they pushed. And if you've ever used a post hole digger because you were putting a basketball goal in your backyard, you know you get it about three or four feet deep. Then you get four or five buddies, and you lift that basketball goal up. And when you get to about right here, gravity takes over, and it pops down into the hole. And when that cross hit the hole, all of Jesus' bones came out of joint. His shoulder came out of joint, both of them. His hips came out of joint. His knees came out of the sockets. And Jesus is now in utter and sheer agony. When I was in college, we were messing around one evening, and I was, and I was back when I could jump, back when I had a vertical leap that was more than an inch and a half. Um, I was jumping over a desk. I don't know we were playing tag or something, but as I jumped over this desk, I put my hands down and kind of vaulted over, and I felt this really sharp pain in my left hand. And I looked down, and this, my ring finger on my left hand from the middle knuckle up was sticking straight sideways like that. And I thought to myself, that's something you you don't see every day. About the same time, I cried out in terrible pain. And nobody ever taught me to do this, but I grabbed it, and I pulled it out, and I popped it back into place just instinctively because I, I didn't know what else to do. And then I sat there and literally just sobbed, holding my hand, and the knuckle was, I don't know, it was three or four times the size. That was just one little knuckle joint coming out of place. 
Jesus has every major joint in his body out of place. So now everything is pressed forward and the suffocation begins. And that's how you die when you're crucified. You're leaning forward, all the weight of your upper body because your joints aren't in place anymore. Everything's leaning on your lungs. Gravity is pushing you forward and pushing you down, and you literally can't breathe. Well, you can only endure that for so long until you force yourself to stand up. But you're not standing up on anything good because remember, everything's out of place. And remember that you're actually standing on a spike between your ankles. And that pain's excruciating. You can only take that for a few seconds, and then it's back down and up and down and up and down until you eventually suffocate to death. This is the physical suffering of Jesus. It's the cruelest death imaginable. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. In fact, a Roman citizen, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen except by the edict of Caesar himself. So the the crucifixion of a Roman citizen in Jesus' day was virtually unheard of. And it was made to set an example. If you break the rule of Roman law, this is what could happen to you. We also read in other gospels that they came to break Jesus' legs after he died. Why? Because they didn't want him to, to live past sundown. So if you break your legs, you literally can't stand up and the suffocation happens in a couple of hours instead of a couple of days. So here is Jesus, all alone, not a friend in the world, and suffering physically in ways that we can't begin to imagine. I don't know what kind of suffering you've had in your life. I know there are people at Green Tree that have suffered and are suffering terribly. Uh, People that have had serious bouts with cancer and other terrible illnesses. I have not had that kind of suffering in my life. I had back pain one time for a week where I felt like I couldn't breathe. I literally tried to lay stiff as a, as a plank because every time I bent just a little bit, it felt like all of my body would just kind of erupt in pain. And I know in, in that particular week of my life before I went and got a couple of shots and got it kind of worked out that I just thought it was going to last forever and it was awful. It felt isolating. I felt like there was nobody else that ever experienced this pain. Maybe you've been in that kind of place or far worse. What I experienced was only for a week. And you have this sense that it's never, ever going to end But we need to understand, as we read this passage of Scripture, that there's no pain we bear. There's no illness that we endure that Jesus has not felt or is uncommon to him. And we are not alone when we suffer physically. But it wasn't just physical suffering that Jesus endured. It was also the emotional suffering of the the humiliation and the taunts that took place before the crucifixion and through the crucifixion. Again, verses 28 through 31, they stripped him, embarrassed him publicly, put a scarlet robe on him to mock him. They twisted together the crown of thorns. Then they knelt before him. They mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him about the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. These soldiers took great delight in humiliating Jesus and saying, you're, you're nothing. You're, you're, you're less than nothing. And the spitting and the mocking, the making fun of, the ridicule and the nakedness all must have been incredibly humiliating to the Son of God. Must have been almost more than could be expected to be endured. But then also notice that when he's led to the cross and he's crucified, he's also robbed. 
His last earthly possessions are taken. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. The thought was, well, he isn't going to need these anymore. And so what rightfully belonged to Jesus, the Romans took and made their own. I don't know if you've ever been swindled by anybody. I don't know if your house has ever been broken into. I don't know if you've ever been robbed by anyone. I've I've talked to a couple people who have been, and, and they say it's a very violating experience. It's a very helpless feeling to be robbed by someone. I had a friend named Doug Graham who we used to do ministry together years ago back when we were, I was in youth ministry. And Doug was a guy who just, he, he, to say that Doug watches pennies carefully would be being nice. He was a cheapskate. I mean, the guy wouldn't, wouldn't spend a, a dime on a cup of water if he was dying of thirst. But um, he, he, he uh, had a, a girlfriend he really liked to end up being his wife. And, and, and when he proposed to her, he decided to spend a little money and take her to a Cardinals baseball game. Well, they go down to Bush Stadium, but Doug, being the kind of guy that doesn't like to spend money, like four blocks from the old Bush Stadium, under one of the highway overpasses, he found a place you could park for free because it was isolated, it was out of the way, and it, and it wasn't really a parking lot. So Doug parks there, and, and Doug's big baseball fan stayed till the very end of the game. Now they're coming out of Bush Stadium. There's nobody but them in this parking lot and the guy with the gun. And it comes up to Doug and pulls the gun on him and says, give me the keys to your car. And Doug said, it's the worst Thing I've ever experienced and felt in my life. So what'd you do? I gave him the keys. He got in, tried to drive it off as a stick shift. He couldn't drive it. <laughs> got out, threw the keys at my feet. I thought he was going to shoot me because he was mad he couldn't steal my car, but he ran off. If you've, if you've ever been robbed, it's a, it's a very terrible feeling. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, and the very last thing he has, the only thing he has, is clothes. And it's as if he isn't even there. The guy said, well, look what we have now. Look what belongs to us. What it must feel like to have someone take everything from you so that you literally have nothing left when you die. But also the racial slurs that were there. In verse 37, after they sat down to watch over him over his head, they put a charge against him which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now, if you notice later on in the passage when the scribes and the Pharisees get in, in to mocking Jesus, they call him the king of Israel. And they make a distinction. They don't call him the king of the Jews because the Romans were using that as, as a racial slur. He's nothing more than the king of the Jews. And if you want to revolt against Rome and you want to make yourself to be a king of such a pathetic awful, insignificant race like these Jews go right ahead, but this is what will happen to you. Anybody who's ever suffered simply because their skin was a certain color, anyone who's ever been called names because they're too tall or too short or too fat or too skinny or they're too smart or they're too stupid can relate to Jesus being hung on a cross and being mocked simply because of his nationality in a way that is ridiculing at its worst. And so here's Jesus with a sign over his head that is typical for the Romans, but it didn't say murderer, it didn't say thief, didn't say insurrectionist. It said, this is a person who's less than human simply because he's a Jew. But the insults continue. If you look at verses 39 and 40, even those who are casually passing by, even those who who don't actually have a hand in the crucifixion are insulting. Yes, they know Jesus. They know something of his teaching by what they say, but they're not vested in this scenario. In verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, 
saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Even the casual observer is mocking Jesus, is laughing at him, is reminding him of his very words and what he has promised. What they don't know is that he's in the very act of having the temple destroyed and raising it in three days. But even their jesting, speaking the truth, strikes to the core of the matter. But then his enemies join in, those who hated him most, those who were, who were most responsible to, to see that he got to that place on that particular day. In verse 41, all the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and they mocked him as they said amongst themselves. They didn't even talk to Jesus. They wouldn't even look at him. He was so far beneath them. He said he, would save, he saved others, but he could not save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. The taunts of his enemies also contain a temptation and I want you to see it clearly. They're calling for him to come down off the cross. And while Jesus looks vulnerable, while Jesus looks like he is in a moment of great weakness, we need to understand what's actually transpiring here that all the power of the Godhead is coming to bear on Jesus staying on the cross. If Jesus gets off the cross, it doesn't matter what the Pharisees choose to believe or not believe, they're destined for hell. If Jesus gets off the cross, all the sins that you've committed and all the sins that I've committed are not paid for and we must account for them before a righteous and holy God. As Jesus was suffering physically and emotionally and he was being abused verbally, Jesus had to muster the power to ignore the temptation. If you're the son of God, come off the cross. Where's the last time in scripture we heard that question, if you're the son of God? Was it not in the wilderness temptation? If you're the son of God, Satan said what? Turn these stones to bread. Because you're hungry. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off the top of the temple. God will send his angels to protect you. He won't even let you scratch the bottom of your foot. If you're God, if you're God, come off the cross. And Jesus was not only fighting emotional and physical pain, but he was fighting the temptation of saying, Father, I've had enough. This isn't worth it. Let's go ahead and do away with this rabble. You see, Jesus could save himself. Or Jesus could save you and me, but he couldn't do both. Listen to the words of biblical commentator D.A. Carson. And though Jesus could have saved himself, he could not have saved himself if he were to save others. The words, let him come down from the cross, and we believe in him, have several levels of meaning. They constitute a malicious barb directed at Jesus' helplessness while having the effrontery to suggest the leader's failure to believe was his fault. The taunt piously promises faith in Jesus if Jesus will but step down from the cross. But the reader knows that if Jesus did step down, there would be no salvation from sin, no theological basis for healing, no gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed to the nations everywhere, no fulfillment of the scriptures. And so while Jesus endures incredible emotional suffering, He also faces, I think, probably the greatest temptation of his life, which is to end it all, end all the suffering, declare his kingship, 
judge his enemies and ascend to glory, but he chooses instead your salvation and mine in the midst of incredible emotional suffering. To the, to the extent that Matthew even includes verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now we know from the other gospels that one of those robbers turns to Christ for salvation, but, it, but that happens later on. Now think about this. If you're being crucified, you're in excruciating pain. It's almost impossible for you to stand up to catch your breath, much less get enough oxygen in your lungs to say anything. But these men were so involved in the scenario that they would endure that pain in order that they too might curse Jesus. I would dare say as much emotional suffering as any of us have experienced in our life, it has never been to this extent. Jesus physically broken suffers abject humiliation as he is verbally assaulted for hours. No victim of bullying, no target of racism, name-calling, public scorn, or any other verbal abuse has ever suffered beyond the emotional pain that Jesus endures. He's isolated without one human friend to come to his defense. And so we come to the fulfillment of what was written in both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Psalm 22, David foretells of what Jesus is feeling emotionally. And he writes, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by all mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Then the prophet Isaiah Speaking of the Messiah, says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That is the reality of the cross of Jesus. The physical suffering was beyond description, and the emotional suffering left Jesus utterly and completely alone, except for the presence of his Father, which we will learn next week, is also taken from him. How do you respond to something like this? As I said, it's kind of like the, the, the Lawrence Taylor hit on Joe Theismann. It's better just not to look at it. You know it happened, but it just feels so awful to watch. And yet I think it's important that we respond to this text this morning. So I'm going to give you what I think are four very simple responses, and we're going to hopefully practice each one of them in the next few moments. The first is simply to be still, <laughs> to linger and to consider what Jesus has done. All of this happened so that you and I could have salvation, and probably the most appropriate response we can have is just to, just to be quiet for a moment and to think of what the Lord has accomplished and the price that he paid. So in a moment, we're going to end the sermon with a time of silent prayer. But I think there should also be a sense of, of wonder and awe at the endurance of Jesus. Think about what he went through in order to purchase our salvation. I think I probably would have stopped when the first uh, servant of the priest walked up and slapped me in the face for something I didn't do and began to mock me. I think I would have pretty much said enough's enough at that point. Let's show him who's really in charge. Praise God that I am not the Savior because none of you nor I would make it. I think it's appropriate for us to sit back and just be astounded at the patience and the endurance of our Lord Jesus. 
Thirdly, I think there's a practical application here. It gives us great confidence that our Lord understands emotional and physical pain. Again, for those of you that have suffered greatly, how often have you felt that there's no one who understands, that you're all alone to endure silently what no one else can really appreciate? And if this text tells us anything, it tells us that Jesus understands our suffering to a greater degree than maybe even we will understand ourselves. Let me read for you one verse out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Speaking about Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or to make forgiveness for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest. That's the one to whom you pray when you feel that you're all alone. That's the one when you, when you want to quit, when you want to give in, when you want to say it's just too much for any one person to endure. You go to the one who has endured your pain and then some because only he truly understands the degree of suffering that's in your life. Our, our very best Stephen ministers, we have the best Stephen ministers in the, in the continental United States, right here at Green Tree Community Church. I took a poll. They were rated number one. <laughs> Even they can't begin to understand the depth of your suffering, but the Lord does. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. And furthermore, he's not going to say, I just don't get that because I'm God and that never happened to me, but I wish you well. He's going to say, I know your pain, as someone can truly say. And lastly, I think our response is a response of praise and worship. You maybe noticed this morning uh, when you came into church, we typically sing more at the beginning, a little bit less in the end. We only sang two songs at the beginning. Why? Because we're going to sing more at the end today. Why are we going to do that? Because it's appropriate, and it's right, and it's good. That out of our vision of the cross and understanding what Jesus has done, We worship him and him alone. Let's pray together.